and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and your host Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, we're sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldwin. We can't wait till he is back hosting this stud cast very soon. And we're proud to be filling his shoes, if that is even possible. You have found the only podcast on the planet, which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Tennessee stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and we're about to take a ride. This is going to be a lot of fun. Hey, Ron, what's up, man? Oh, how you doing, Dave? Good to doing great. Good to, Thanks good for the invitation. It's awesome to be filling in again for Jeff. Well, I appreciate it very much, man. Uh, you're doing a great job, and. Uh, and uh, it's uh, and I like to say, uh, you know, my best wishes to Jeff as well. I think he's probably should be toward the end of his chemo. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, all that worked out well for him. And hopefully, like like you say, we could have him back soon today. Uh, we've got a good one, Dave. Uh, you know, we had a we had last week the Southeastern slaughter and tremendous comments. A lot of fans really enjoyed that. I think it was probably uh, one of the best stud casts that uh, we've done maybe ever. And uh, the subject matter was really good. And, and we're going to we're gonna kind of go back in that direction today a little bit. Well, there's plenty to add to, I'm certain, because I know what happens the next day is pretty unusual as well. And you're about to get that. So anyway, more specifics. What's going on today? Well, we're going to ride into the Booker Owner Nightmare. <laughs> That's exactly what happened with that Southeastern slaughter on June the 4th, 1976. It created for me, being a the booker and the owner, a nightmare, man. Uh, a really bad situation. Three major injuries in one night, pretty much unheard of. And we're going to talk about all those injuries in this program again, uh, who got hurt, how it happened, and uh, how it's going to affect not just the next card, following Friday night of June 11th, but it's going to going to have an effect on Southeastern wrestling for several weeks. You lose uh, two major stars. Or we're gone. Uh, I expected that uh, Steinborn was going to be gone, but I didn't expect for me and Don Carson to get hurt same night as well. But we're going to talk about how I survived it as an owner and a booker 
pretty hard to even survive that type of evening. And then I had to figure out how to regain the momentum after we had lost it. Can't keep business good when you have that type of situation. We've got two or three main guys get hurt in one night. So we'll highlight TV of the following day after the slaughter, which was on June the 5th. We're going to TV the following morning, and uh, we'll be talking about that and how difficult that was after spending part of the night in the hospital. And that TV is going to promote, obviously, the following Friday, as they all do, that Saturday television. And I've got to piece together a card in the middle of the night, and we'll talk about the results of that card. And uh, now I'm going to try to explain how to put the nightmare behind me and to try to keep my sanity at the same time. I've gotten things rolling, and now I'm really in the hole. So I'm going to tell my last four Australian stories. I've done four of them. This one, I'm going to tell the fourth one, and next actually going to be about four today. And obviously, this is kind of in tribute to Jim Barnett, who is our focus on this month's Super Stud cast, which is really a record setter. It's really doing good. This week's learning tree that I announced last week, I'm going to have to change that question because I had so many great comments from fans about what happened that night and how I was going to handle it, why things got like they were, and and how I was I going to dig my way out of the hole, basically, that uh, I'm going to save that question I was going to do, my learning tree question for today about my members of my family, the ones that I don't often speak of, and I'm going to do that again next week. But the question this week is a good one. And uh, the question was, the gentleman says, I was very intrigued by Don Carson's short baby face, back to heel turn. And was it your plan all along for it to be that quick? And what would have happened if he hadn't got hurt that night? Uh, Really good question. And then he finished up, said, very interesting booking. And uh, thank him for the compliment. You know, uh, it was a real struggle for me to figure out where to go uh, after that really bad night of June the 4th. 1976. All right. It sounds like a great one today, Ron. Let's, let's cinch it up and let's get on the road. Okay, man. Well, before we ride into this stud cast, I want to go back to last week. In fact, I just about have to, to explain today's program. What I call the Southeastern slaughter of June the 4th, 76. Like I said, just a few minutes ago, it created a real booking nightmare for me and even bigger a nightmare as an owner because business is going to drop some. And it wasn't just following morning that I'm going to have a problem, but it's uh, for several weeks I'm going to have a problem. On Friday, June 4th, like I said, I lost three guys. Don Carson, Dick Steinborn, who was the Mid-American champion, and myself from, from the crew. Steinborn was the only one of the three of us that I expected to not return. And I knew he was going to be leaving for a couple of months. And then he's going to return full time in August. But neither he or I knew that he was going to get actually hurt. We were going to have uh, Homer Odell and Tanaka and Austin uh, be a problem for me and mine and his match. And he was going to get supposedly hurt, but he actually did get hurt, hurt pretty badly. Now I got to deal with that. And now he has to deal with that. He's going home and he's he's going to be. He's not going to have a really good vacation like he was hoping he would have. So I don't know what to expect at this point out of Don Carson himself. Uh, You know, I don't know how badly he's hurt. So get the full story of what happened on last week's slaughter 
I think we need to drop back to the Coliseum show, oddly enough, of February 27, 1976. This is where Steinborn and I sit down in the dressing room. We have a long conversation. He really likes my company. He likes the way my dressing room is uh, handled. Uh, he likes the atmosphere. And he wants to come and work for me full time. And on that night, we talk about doing an angle a month down the road. Basically, start in the month of May with three matches between me and him, babyface matches for my Southeastern Championship and the third one, which is going to end up on June the 4th, for my title and his title. And we wrestled one week, 45-minute time limit, came back, wrestled an hour time limit the next week, and we come back the third week, June the 4th, with a 90-minute time limit and both titles at stake which means the winner is going to be Southeastern champion and Mid-American champion. So on that night in February, said we had this conversation, and the three nights he picked and we picked, we both sat down and looked in my book and said we want to do one of these babyface matches on May the 21st, one on May the 28th, and the other the third week in a row on June the 4th. Right. And on that night, we were expecting that we would do the angle with Homer and Tanaka and Austin, where they're going to get involved in our match. So, and then his plans were for him to go home to Orlando. His father was living in Orlando, Milo Steinborn, and he hadn't been home. He hadn't been off in a while, but he was going to come back in August. Going to come back, not as Dick Steinborn, but under a mask as a guy called the Gladiator. So everything went perfectly the night of June the 4th. Up until Tanaka and Norvell got in the ring and they got carried away a little bit and they actually hurt both of us. So, you know, the bad thing that happened that night, obviously, is uh, is I got hurt. He got hurt. And then uh, and then somebody else that was a star on the card got hurt the same darn night. So imagine this, Dave. You know, I, I left home about six o'clock on Friday afternoon on a routine Friday night going down to take care of the match. Carson gets hurt badly just before Steinborn and my match. Both Steinborn and I get hurt in the very next match. Uh, we're both taken by ambulance to the hospital. I leave the hospital about 1 o'clock in the morning. Steinborn, who had a concussion, was knocked unconscious, was not able to leave until 3 o'clock. And then I had to have x-rays and everything else gets done in an emergency room of the hospital. I had horrible pains in my right shoulder where Tanaka was going to just make it look like he hurt. He actually did hurt. And it partially dislocated my right shoulder. Ooh. So I couldn't take any pain medicine uh, because my night was just beginning after that horrible experience. Uh, my night was just starting. What do you mean it was just beginning? It's like you've already been through hell and you're saying it's just beginning. What What's next? <laughs> Well, I had to go home and I had urgent business to take care of. I had a TV show that was supposed to be recorded in less than 10 hours. Uh, I had matches already set up and they were ready to be advertised on that TV show. Right. And I knew after what had happened earlier in the night that I wasn't going to have two of those matches. I knew my match wasn't going to be against Tanaka like I wanted to have. And I knew Carson wasn't going to be coming back to Russell against Ron Wright. So I had to figure out how to take care of all this, salvage the loss of two top stars in one night. 
and I had the challenge of scheduling another card. Uh, I had to remove myself, and I had to figure out what to do with Carson's match against Rod Wright. I didn't even know what Carson's condition was. Uh, I had no way to get in touch with him. You know, we didn't have cell phones back in 1976. You couldn't just pick up the phone and call somebody. Uh, He left the park immediately after he hurt his knee. He wasn't even there during the last match. And uh, Dick Dunn and uh, Tarzan Baxter, who were close friends of his, mm-hmm. and they lived in the same department complex as he did. They didn't take him to the apartment complex. They drove him to his home in Cleveland, Tennessee. And they spent the night. And uh, I had his home phone number, but he didn't go home. So I couldn't contact him. I couldn't contact uh, either Baxter or Dunn. So I was in a bad position there. I'd had no idea how bad he was hurt, whether he was going to be able to wrestle or not. And I wasn't going to be able to find out till the following day when Dunn and Baxter came to TV about 11 o'clock in the morning. So I got to go home. I got to change the entire card, pretty much the entire card. And uh, I had less than eight hours to do it and to make out a card, to drive to television, to stay the next morning. With my left arm, couldn't use my right arm. I had to handle the TV show and get everything ready before noon to actually record it. So I was up until about four o'clock in the morning, figuring out how to change the original card. And then after I finished the card, I realized that that they'd give me pain pills and I was in a lot of pain, but I couldn't take the pain pill because I got to go and handle business. If I take a pain pill at four in the morning, and I got to get up at, at six and then start getting ready to go to TV and try to do what I needed to do at TV. I couldn't do it. So I was still in a lot of pain when I left to go to TV. So I had to change the card in the middle of the night. All right. So when you say go home, you must have lived in the Knoxville area at the time. Right. Thank goodness. How, how far a drive into the Coliseum or to the, to the TV station, for example? Uh, probably about, uh, 20, 25 minutes from my house. So not a bad proximity, but all right. So in the meantime, how do you fix a wrestling lineup at the last second? And, and in the 20 minutes you're driving into work, are you still mentally trying to figure this thing out? What was going on? Well, I'd pretty much figured it out, uh, during the course of uh, getting home about one thirty in the morning. And, uh, before I went to sleep at four o'clock, right. but that's uh, a darn good question. How do you change something like that in the middle of the night? And especially, uh, you know, sitting there in a whole bunch of pain when you're trying to do it. So it, it was just a small part of the nightmare that night. And I had to start. What I, I'd like to do is I, I want to start with the card I had originally booked, uh, just to uh, give people an idea of how you do change the card at the last right. minute and why I had to change it and why. Then it's kind of the decisions I made of how to change it. So the original card for Friday, June 11th, before I was hurt, before Ron Wright was hurt, it was the Southeastern Championship. I was going to finally defend my title against Tor Tanaka because of Homer. He had, he had hurt me, and he certainly hurt Dick Steinborn. So uh, I had to remove that match, obviously. I'm not going to be able to wrestle Homer, and I'm not going to be able to wrestle Homer's man, Tanaka. Ron Wright is supposed to wrestle Don Carson. And uh, that's off that great angle that we worked that night uh, in which Carson, uh, you know, Don Moran Wright chased him down and tackled him. And uh, and actually, that's what hurt Don's leg. Uh, but, uh, you know, so that match 
got to be changed. Top two matches are gone. Southeastern Tag Championship was going to be the third match. The winner would get the belts, and the losers of that tag match were going to have to leave town. That was Robert and Jimmy, the champions, versus mm-hmm. the Super Avengers. Uh, Mike Stallings was going to wrestle against Norvell Austin, managed by Homer O'Dell. Big Butch Malone is going to meet a new heel, a brand new heel that's coming in the territory, Carl Von Steiger. And another new heel, Louis Tillette, was on that card. He's coming in for his first match ever in Southeastern. And uh, he's wrestling a guy against the name the Golden Hawk. Right. That's a hell of a card. I mean, you know, we worked an angle. Uh, it made sense that I come back, defend my title against Tanaka for the first time. Uh, right. Ron Wright goes against Don Carson after he and Carson have had all these problems. And now Carson turns on him. <coughs> I have a tag championship. All three of those matches are gone. Top three right. matches have to be gone. One thing we know about you and the way you like to book is you didn't like an overwhelming amount of matches or superstars that were going to be in those matches. Typically, it was, what, five to seven matches, and that was one night, right? Yep. Yep. So, you know, total number of matches aren't going to change much on this card. Right. I'm going to add one match to this card because I have to weaken the card considerably because of who I have. You know, right. so I'm piecing this card together and, uh, you know, and I don't even know whether Carson's going to be there or not. Here's the best I could do at piecing together a new card and having to guess whether Carson would be there or not. I thought about this. It was an idea I came up with. I'm going to have Southeastern officials punishing Homer O'Dell and his men by awarding my Southeastern championship belt to my brother, Robert. And uh, he would have to defend it the next Friday night. But he wouldn't be defending against Tanaka because Homer and his guys had caused this, Rob's going to defend the belt against Super Avenger number two in an ODQ match. So that's going to be the top of that card. I had to remove my Southeastern title match against Tanaka after the injury and the angle that we worked and I got hurt in. So I lost that match and I replaced it with Rob defending against Super Avenger. Not near the quality of what I had expected to do. I had to think out of the box about the Don Carson deal. Uh, his match with Ron Wright was uh, scheduled for the card on the original card. And this was a great angle. I mean, uh, Carson had turned on Wright. He had left him uh, beating the hell out of him and tried to go to the dressing room, and Wright chased him down. Uh, this would have been a tremendous match to return. But I didn't know one way or the other whether Carson was going to be able to work. So in case that he couldn't work, I booked Carson against Jimmy Golden instead of Ron Wright. Now, my thinking was if Carson couldn't work and uh, it came time for the match, the fans would be a lot less disappointed if they missed a match between Carson and Golden rather than a match with Ron Wright against Carson. So, you know, I'm trying to think about how the fans are going to accept this if Carson can't wrestle. Uh, That way, if he couldn't work, the fans would be much less disappointed is the way I was thinking. And if Carson could work, but he was so injured that he couldn't have a good match with Wright, it was going to kill the angle that I had worked anyway of turning him back heel. So, you know, I was really in a real bad position. Didn't know whether he could work. If he could, I had an option. If he couldn't, I had another option. So losing this Carson and Ron Wright match really hurt. Not just this card, but it's going to hurt the next few weeks afterward. I was depending on this quick turn for Carson. I turned him babyface, made him partners with Ron Wright, and I wanted to quickly 
have him turn on Ron Wright. And that was going to help me uh, carry business and keep Towns drawing until some of the new guys like Bob Armstrong and Carl Von Steiger and Louis Tillette, these new guys got over. So the next match changed for the Southeastern Tag Championship. Rob's not going to be able to defend the titles, not going to be able to to do the loser-leave-town match for the Tag Championship because he's now the Southeastern champion and he's got to be in a single match. So uh, I had to change that match to Ron Wright and Mike Stallings against Naka and Austin, managed by Homer. At least Ron Wright's in there with guys that were beating him up big time the week before. It made a little sense to book it that way. I had really no choice. Big Butch Malone against the new hero, Carl Von Steiger. I did not change that match. I left it as it was. Louis Tillette, now a new heel. He's never been there. So I've had to bring him in. I was forced to use him as a babyface because I had lost two babyfaces the Friday before. Myself, Don Carson, who was a babyface. So I had to put Louis Tillette against another heel, Super Avenger. Then I added one more match to the card, and I put Lynn Rossi, who was a big-time star in Tennessee for many, many years, a great star there. He had a son named Joey. He was a young kid, but the Rossi name was very meaningful in Knoxville. And I booked Joey Rossi against the Golden Hawk in the first match. So as an owner and a booker, I was extremely disappointed with this substitute card for June 11th. I knew the houses and the whole territory were going to be down. Thank goodness, best time of the year. It was the beginning of the summer, and kids were out of school. And business was just basically good in the entire summer. And I think that fact kept business dropping even more than what it did. A bright spot in all of this is the TV show the next morning was tremendous. Fans flooded to standing room only. Every chair was full, obviously. And there was guys standing and people standing with their backs against the wall, all three sides of the studio. And the fans were totally engaged with what had happened the night before. And they were enraged about what had happened the night before, too. They had seen so much uh, devastation to baby faces during the course of the night. So two fantastic videos going to be on the television show. And uh, they're going to tell a compelling story of what I call the Southeastern Slaughter. And I, I realized if I had not have had the ability to shoot these matches that took place in video and uh, not being able to show it rather than just tell people about it, how bad it would have hurt my business. It would have been horrible. So I luckily had these videos of what happened. People could see it for themselves. So in this case, a picture was truly worth more than many thousands of words because there's no way that trying to tell somebody what had happened and explain this new card would have made sense at all. So TV opened with a shot. It opened with a great shot right off of bat uh, after music and uh, and the credits uh, and the normal television opening ran. They opened with a shot of ambulance taking me and Steinborn to the hospital. It showed first us being rolled out the ambulances and they had the fans were all lined up on both sides. It was a pretty amazing shot. Fans didn't go home. Thousands of them stayed afterward to see what happened to us. So it showed us being uh, rolled out there and the fans all there. And then they left the park, sirens blaring. And Les sold it great, too. He actually called the show itself 
he said there was a basically I don't know how to put it any other way than there was a slaughter last night at the matches at, oh. at Chill Howie Park and uh, three guys have been hurt badly. So then uh, he set up a little short version of a much longer piece of video clip that we're going to show later in the show. And this one was with Austin, showed Austin jump off the top rope, tying Warren's back. Uh, then it cut to Tanaka dislocating my shoulder, and that showed him sitting in my back and snapping my arm up. And I was up in the director's booth watching it. I hadn't seen this video before. And when I watched it, it hurt me again just watching it. Oh, gosh, man, no wonder it hurt me. Then he brought out Homer Odell, Tanaka and Austin. So we're opening the show with ambulances hauling us off. Uh, we're showing kind of real quickly what happened to, to uh, Steinborn, why he's hurt. They showed what happened to me, why I was hurt. And then he brings out Homer and Tanaka and Austin. And he announced to them, the studio crowd, and all the audience at home, obviously, that all three of them were banished from TV that day and that they would be able to come back next Saturday but only to find out what the officials at Southeastern had decided their future was with Southeastern. So studio crowd erupted, and they loved that. And the three of them, they left the set. They didn't even make a comment. Heads down, they got up, walked out, pretty cut and dry. But the slaughter continued. Uh, he announced less announced. It wasn't the only injuries of the night, and he invited Ron Wright out to the set. And they had a little brief discussion about what had happened to him the night before. And then they showed a short segment of Don Carson and him partners in the match against Tanaka and Austin with uh, Homer in the corner. And Homer in the ring, actually, the three of them against two of Carson and Wright. And it showed a short version of that match. Uh, and Carson refused to tag. They showed that part where Carson would tag Ron Wright. Ron was already bleeding. He was in real trouble. And then uh, Carson made the move to go to the dressing room, and Ron Wright got out and ran and tackled him on the concrete. And that's when Carson hurt his leg. And obviously, they then showed both Dunn Baxter with their mask on, picking Carson up, carrying him finally from that aisleway back to the dressing room. It was uh, the entire first segment of the show, for the first time ever on Southeastern Wrestling did not have a live wrestling mat. It had nothing but video from the night before. And I kind of, when I put it together, I, I was thinking, I don't know whether this is going to work or not. But after I watched it myself, I was absolutely sure that there wasn't anybody at home out there watching this program that was going to turn the channel at this point. I mean, oh, wow. we really had them. These videos were really, really good. And I knew that people at home were going, wow, this is some bad deals here. Did you have the ring set up in the studio? Oh, yeah. We're going to go ahead and have three more matches. We'll have three live matches. Right. But the first segment of the show, where we normally had four matches every television, Yeah. the first segment was all videos. It showed basically the results, what happened the night before, and how all three of the guys that got hurt got hurt. Yeah. So it kind of explained what happened. And like I said, if you'd had to do that without video, it would have been nothing. It would have been horrible. But the fact that they could see it, they could all see for themselves what happened. It worked out well. So what we did then is I changed the show format a little bit. Rob and I, we took the personality profile. We did it live in front of the studio audience. 
because that was really good. I liked doing live and the fans being right there. Uh, we opened it up with me, Rob, and Les all seated. And I had a sling on my right arm, which I was going to be wearing that sling for months. I'm, I'm really hurt, uh, you know, and uh, I can't help it. I, I, and I've definitely got to keep that sling on. I uh, found out right away without trying to wear it, you're not going to drop that with your shoulder because it feels like your shoulder is going to fall on the floor. So I'm on there with a sling on my arm. I've got the Southeast Championship belt in my lap. Then we watched an extended version of the video that was in the first segment, and we watched more of it. We get to see where Austin and Tanaka actually hit the ring and where Homer gets comes down and starts uh, talking about uh, his boy not getting a shot at the title and me and Steinborn in the middle of our match, and I just go out and I start on Homer beating the hell out of him. And Tanaka and Austin come and attack Steinborn in the ring. They got him bleeding, and it shows uh, Tanaka chopping Steinborn uh, in the back of the neck, I mean, repeatedly, big-time chops. And then it shows uh, Austin climb up on the top rope, Tanaka move out of the way, and Austin jumped off. And Steinborn's laying on his stomach. He jumped off the back of his neck. And that's a tremendously dangerous move. I don't care what kind of worker you are when you're jump off the top rope on somebody and you try to place a knee or even a stomp or a foot in their throat area, it's really, really hard to keep from hurting. It's going to happen again about five months later uh, in a world championship match with me and Terry Funk and Ronnie Garvin's going to do it and I'm going to get hurt again. It's just a dangerous move. And then Steinborn really got hurt, you know, and so, but it shows the actual move itself. And uh, then it shows uh, Steinborn's bleeding pretty bad, and uh, then Austin jumps off. And then about that time, I go back up into the ring, and both Austin and Tanaka, they stop me right away. And Austin puts his arm on, on the, his knee on the back of my left arm, holds me down face first to the mat. Tanaka sits in my back, reaches down, puts his legs on both sides of my right arm, reaches, grabs that arm. And if it was an oar in a boat, he would have popped it out of the, <laughs> out of the holder. And that's what he did. He just jerked straight up on that, on my right arm, and it jerked my shoulder out. Then Steinborn's laying there unconscious in the ring at this point, and uh, I, I pointed it out. He never moved, uh, and he was right there beside me. He never moved because he was unconscious at that point. And then that, that showed that it, it stayed with it. It showed the policeman actually getting in the ring and helping us, and the policeman realized we hurt. Uh, Rob came down, Jimmy came down, Stallings, Malone, uh, all the baby faces. And uh, then it showed the ambulance taken away. And then Les told the fans about the Southeastern officials, the decision that he told the, earlier in the show that Rob was going to be awarded the Southeastern belt because of what had happened. And uh, Rob accepted the belt right there in front of the studio audience, got a big standing ovation from the crowd. And Les gave me his condolence about my injury. And he asked me how long I was going to be out. And the doctors had told me, you can expect to be out at least three months. Wow. So uh, Les added that he had talked to Dick Steinborn's father, Milo Steinborn. And Dick would be out for at least four months. So the entire profile had gone about 10 minutes. Uh, but the fans in the studio, I mean, they stuck on every word. Uh, they were mesmerized by that video. And when that happens and you got the studio audience's attention, 
I know the same thing's going to be happening in homes all across the Southeast. Those people that are watching the show are going to have the same experience the studio crowd has. Right. So later in the show, Ron Wright came back to the set. He watched the longer version of his match, which him and Carson were partners, and Carson had left him basically alone in the ring with three guys. And uh, this one showed just how much pain Ron Wright endured in that match. And uh, Wright bled a lot in that match. Uh, and those three guys, Homer and Tanaka and Austin, beat the heck out of him, especially during the second fall. And uh, that's where Carson got on the floor, started to leave. And when he started for the dressing room, Ron Wright was hanging in the corner, and he just fell out onto the floor and went after Carson. And uh, then Wright described to Les uh, how he knew Don Carson really hurt when he tackled Carson. And then he explained in a in that Ron Wright way with that old Tennessee, East Tennessee accent, <laughs> how he despised Don Carson. That he was happy that he hurt his knee. And, uh, you know, he despised him because he'd been betrayed by him and, and he felt stupid that Carson had played him for a fool. And he believed that Carson had changed ways. He said, I should have known better. And he, they said, I thought he became a friend that I could really trust. He says, you know, Les, I hope I have an opportunity to tear out his other knee. <laughs> so, you know, great interview. So Les finished up by saying he had no news. You know, I think uh, probably Ron Wright asked, you know, uh, what's the story on Carson? Uh, how bad is he hurt? And uh, Les says, you know, we haven't heard from him. He's on the card for next week, he said. And he's scheduled to be on the show today, but he's obviously not here. So Ron said, you know, I just hope I have another chance to tear out his other knee. And so I'm going to save the rest of my thoughts about this angle with Carson and Ron Wright for the end of the show today, because it has to do with an answer for the learning tree question that we got. Okay. So there's a lot of real heat that day and probably in homes all across the southeastern United States that afternoon at two o'clock when the show is showing. And the only problem was the right wrestlers weren't able to get in the ring to do anything about it. Uh, I'm hurt. Steinborn's hurt. And Ron Wright's really hurt, too. I mean, he's, he's got a busted eye and he's all patched up. So my injury and Carson's unexpected injury had really taken the life out of those two great angles that we had worked the Friday night before. Wow, that is incredible. So what happened the next Friday? Well... Joey Rossi in that first match uh, came in, did a great job. He turned out to be a great little wrestler like his father was, and he beat the Golden Hawk, uh, Louis Tillette, who is a great heel. The Southeast fans know nothing about him, but he's not just a great heel. He was a booker for the Florida Territory in 1972 and a great mind as well as a great heel, and he made his first ever appearance for Southeastern. And because of the injuries, like I said, I had to use him as a baby face. He was going to be wrestling against a Super Avenger. And uh, Louis healed just as much Super Avenger, probably more. And uh, and he actually won the match with using a foreign object. <laughs> so the fans, now they'd seen a couple of uh, three weeks in a row. They had seen baby face matches, great ones. And now they see two heels wrestling. And uh, they, they really don't care who wins the match. You know, it's a lot different than watching two baby faces. But to let used a foreign object, and when he beat the Super Avenger, the fans cheered for him. So he, besides being a heel, he still came out looking like a baby face. Big Butch Malone, he got beat in the middle of the ring. 
by the first of two Hill brothers that's coming into Southeast, the Von Steiger brothers. Uh, they're soon going to become the next strong heel tag team for Southeastern. Carl, that's the one that came in first. He was really impressive over Malone. Malone was over, a big guy. And uh, he beat Malone seriously in the middle of the ring. People could really see that this guy was for real. He got over, basically, in the first night. Jimmy Golden came to the ring for his match. He's scheduled to wrestle Don Carson. Ring announcer Phil Rainey. He got the fans' attention, and he made the following announcement when Don Carson never came to the ring. You know, and he had to do something at this point. It's a forfeit. Phil announces, you know, ladies and gentlemen, so he gets everybody's attention. I've been advised by Southeastern Wrestling. Don Carson will not be appearing here tonight. Mm-hmm. The crowd booed, as you expected them. You know, they're not going to get to see Ron Wright beat the hell out of Carson. Right. So, and then he continued. He said, uh, Carson suffered a major knee injury at the hands of Ron Wright. Boy, the crowd exploded on that one. And uh, had cartilage surgery this morning, Cleveland, Tennessee. So uh, he'll be out of action for the next two months. Boy, the crowd really exploded then. They're happy with the results. That very seldom happens in a forfeit. But because Carson was the one that got hurt, going to be out, fans really loved it. So then the referee had him ring the bell, did the same routine that you do for a forfeit. Uh, they rang the bell. They counted to 10. Uh, obviously, Carson's not there. They rang the bell again and raised Jimmy Golden's hand in victory. The crowd cheered, but it wasn't over. I wanted to add something else to it. I wanted to give the fans as much as I could that night. So immediately, Super Avenger number two, who is uh, Dick Dunn, comes back down to ringside, and he gets the mic. And he tells this long story about how he and his partner uh, had had a lifelong friendship with the great Don Carson. And then he asked the fans, just how horrible was it that that hillbilly, like Ron Wright, intentionally tore up a great wrestler's knee on purpose? <laughs> you know, and well, the crowd, they, they gave him their answer, which was booze. Yeah. They didn't give a damn, you know. And then he continued, uh, Jimmy Golden, who was still in the ring, he said, you were supposed to wrestle here tonight. Now I'm going to see to it that somebody gets an ass whipping in honor of my friend, Don Carson. And I'm challenging you to a match right here, right now. Well, boy, the crowd loved it. They're going to get a match after all. Yeah, they're into it. So he jumped up on the apron uh, and he was on the far side of the ring from the dressing room. He was facing the grandstand, jumped on the ring up on the apron of the ring, and he turned his back to Jimmy, and he raised his hands like he'd already won the match, and he's pissing off everybody in the grandstand out there. So Jimmy just ran over, spinned him around, flying, married him over the top rope, and uh, as soon as he hit the mat, somebody rang the bell, and uh, when he got up, Jimmy drop-kicked him across the ring, and then Jimmy went and got up on the top rope, and the Super Avenger, uh, Dunn got up, and he staggered getting up. And when he turned around, all he saw was Jimmy's two big feet hitting him right in the face. Jimmy drop-kicked him off the top rope. He went flying across the ring. Jimmy covered him for a three-count. Crowd popped. Then Jimmy went for his mask. And then the crowd really got into it. And they had a little fight, and they both struggled out on the, on the concrete, uh, up on the, the level where the ringsiders were. And the Avenger got away and he ran to the dressing room. I guess that's what I'd call getting something out of nothing. Uh, and at that point, we really needed. So 
Ron Wright, Mike Stalling, they were next against Tanaka and Norvell Austin. They're managed by Homer. And that match was wild. Both teams got disqualified. They fought all over the amphitheater, up uh, into the grandstand, all over the entire area. Last match was the Southeastern Championship. That was with Rob defending the Southeastern title against Superstar Number 2 with the no-DQ clause. And Robert beat Tarzan Baxter. That was Superstar, Super Avenger Number 2. Now he's the Super Avenger. Uh, Rob beat him with a fuller leg lock right in the middle of the ring. And immediately following the bell, Robert got attacked by the other Avenger, and Jimmy came down, and both the Avengers took off. So all things considered, it was probably a pretty decent night for the fans. Absolutely, especially after what could have happened. So really a wise decision on the follow-through. How would you do at the box up? Well, we dropped out of the 5,000 fan number. We had been around 5,000 and a little bit over for about uh, four weeks in a row. Uh, but we didn't drop really badly as I thought we would. Went down into the fours, about uh, about forty five hundred, rather than five thousand plus, and the crowds dropped a little bit in every one of the cities we ran in because of you know we had two major stars that were suddenly gone, and that was to be expected. I, I knew it was going to happen. I tried not to panic. I'm a young guy, and uh, I finally got things going a little bit. I got a real bad break here. Lost three guys in one night, uh, two of them uh, big-time stars that I wouldn't expect to lose. But I was determined I was going to get that momentum back again. Uh, I thought it might take quite a while, uh, you know, maybe until after Carson and I were able to return to start getting that momentum back. But it turned out I was pretty damn wrong about that. And uh, I had a uh, savior coming uh, the next week by just by happen chance. I had a new baby face coming to Southeastern that it was going to set things on fire in Southeastern right away. And uh, that guy's name was Bob Armstrong. Wow. All right, listen, there's more to come. Don't leave another of those stories about Australia. Of course, Ron spent a lot of time with the family in Australia. So more bizarre stories from Australia, plus the learning tree. More on the way when this studcast continues in a moment right here. No super stud cast is longer than number 29. The Jim Barnett story weighing in at more than four hours. No super stud cast has more guests with more stories about the most colorful, controversial, scandalous, successful, and mysterious professional wrestling promoter in history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Jim Cornette, David Schultz, Kevin Sullivan, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Les Thatcher, and Southeastern Pensacola commentator. Charlie Platt cover the subject like a blanket. There has probably never been as deep a dive into one man's past. Few have ever had the nerve to even try. This Super Studcast is not only the all-time biggest, but maybe the best. Here, wrestling history is only the stud can do it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Four hours for only $2.99. Hear why they call it the best deal in wrestling. All right, we are back once again. And, Ron, I think we might be going back to Australia for the last time on a stud cast. Now, this is the fourth of four pretty incredible stories that we will have heard. What Aussie story do you have for us today? Well, actually, I'm going to try to tell two or three rather quickly. I know uh, I've taken quite a bit of time in the first part of the program. But uh, 
I want to start out with a beach story. Uh, kind of the first one I told about Australia was a beach story. It was about Cronulla city that I lived in and a part of Sydney. And I'm going to tell a story today about another very famous beach, the most famous in Sydney, called Bondi. I like to go to Bondi uh, because it was a beautiful beach, and I wanted to see as many beaches as I could. I had a guy who was a wrestler in the crew that liked to go to beaches with And uh, this is a little bit different <laughs> than most wrestlers. Uh, this was a Japanese midget uh, named Little Tokyo that always wanted to go to the beach with. So you can imagine, I'm, I go to the beach at Bondi. I'm the giant there. I'm about a foot taller than most of the Aussies. And I got a, a, <laughs> a midget that can walk under my legs standing up. He's that short. And uh, we walked down the beach, and I'll tell you, every head turned on Bondi, man. I mean, we were like the talk of the beach, no doubt. So little Tokyo liked to body surf like me, and I would get him out in there yeah, in the Pacific there. And they are beautiful waves, all the beaches in Australia. And uh, I would get him out there with me, and he, would, he liked to swim, but he couldn't touch the bottom like I could till he could get way out. And so he had to swim a lot more than I did. And he wanted to catch these big waves that I was catching. So I would pick his body up and I would put him in the wave so that he didn't have to paddle and catch him. I would just grab him by the stomach and I would push him into the waves. The wave would catch him, take him to the beat. So <laughs> little Tokyo and I became great fans during my stay there in Australia. I really, uh, I'd love to see him again. Uh, was a great guy. Then I had, I had some wrestling boots while I was there. Wrestling boots traditionally back in that time were you either wore white wrestling boots or black wrestling boots. There were no color wrestling boots like they have in today's time. And uh, wrestling boots uh, were made by a company called Carlton Hildegard. They made all types of wrestling robes and boots and tights. If you were a professional wrestler, you had to do business Carl and Hildegard. You couldn't find any other place to do business with. But uh, I wanted to have a different pair of wrestling boots before I left Australia. So I went to a, a, a boot maker, and, uh, and he was going to make me boots out of kangaroo. They didn't have leather. They didn't use leather like we use in America. They used kangaroo. Uh, I, I turned thumbs down on it first until he brought me a pair, some kangaroo leather. You know, I call it leather. It was actually kangaroo skin, but it was softer and it was pliable. It was better than leather. It fits mm. you better. So he actually measured my foot. He measured every part of my foot all the way up to the top of my boot, my ankle. So when he made these boots for me, they were handmade for me. Nobody else could have worn them. And I decided I wanted to have color. I wore these light blue tights for my first three years in the sport. And uh, I'd been in for about three years at this point. And I wanted to have these insets into the white boots that I was going to get white boots. And I wanted to have in this light blue colored uh, material inset into my boots on the inside and the outside of my foot. It was very unusual. Nobody had them. I mean, it just wasn't done at that point. Like I said, he made me these boots. And this guy was so good. When I got my boots and I picked them up from him, I was like blown away. Like, wow, these things are fantastic. He gave me cards. 
I said, I'm going to get you some business. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to take these boots back to America when I go home. And I said, there's going to be wrestlers calling you and have you make boots for them. And uh, he was very thankful about it. So on my way of leaving there, next door was a store that had crocodile skins and uh, kangaroo skins and antelope. Uh, so I go in there and I'm looking at stuff and I find myself a bag that's a wrestling size bag. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it. It was just absolutely amazing. It was made out of kangaroo. It was patches of kangaroo fur. And then the, the enclosure area and where the zippers and things like that, the handles, that part of it was made out of crocodile. It was just fabulous. So I bought that bag and I took my wrestling boots and uh, I'm going to take them back to America. And I'll tell you the end of the story, kind of how all that went down. So I'd been in Australia at this point for almost two months. I hadn't had a night off in just about two months. And I had a day off. It was like, what am I going to do? So my wife had been there taking care of my boys two months, basically by herself. And I'm on the road almost all the time. Uh, She wanted to go to a movie. So we go to a movie night in Australia. And I got to tell you, going to a movie in Australia, and I don't know if things are the same way there anymore, but back in those days, it was a whole night experience. I mean, you didn't go there and watch the movie and go home. Uh, you went there, and uh, it started off with uh, cartoons. Uh, they didn't have the regular cartoons like we have in America. They had these different type of cartoons. One of these cartoons had a dove. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to really tell this story. It's it's kind of far out there, but uh, it if you can imagine, it's a dove that flies over people, and he poops on their head. <laughs> and when he does... The voice goes, do dove. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> what is this all about? And, uh, you know, and it happens to six or eight different people, and it just continues to happen. Uh, the Australian audience, they're, they're getting a little laugh out of it, and I kind of see the humor in it. And then there's finally one guy running. He, he's trying to keep dove getting him. And there's an outhouse, and he jumps inside the outhouse, and he sits in there and he's smiling like, boy, I really outsmarted that bird. And he opens the door and he sticks his head out a little bit and splat, splat on his forehead. Do dove. Dove got him. And then it's after this cartoon, then it's intermission. Now, we've only been there. All you've seen is like a three-minute, five-minute cartoon. And now it's intermission. Well, wait, what's the intermission all about? So everybody goes and they get popcorn, they get the Cokes, stuff like that. They come back, they show another cartoon, kind of similar, but in a different way. Funny somewhat, but a little strange. You know, I couldn't really understand what's going on. Then another intermission. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute here, you know, when are they going to have the movie? So now the movie, the whole story here, you know, I've been in Australia for two months. Uh, I'm an old Southern boy. They can't understand me because I got that uh, Southern draw. And I can't understand them because they speak that proper English. You know, so uh, guess what the movie is? You'd never guess. This is 1973. It's the hottest movie in the world. It's Deliverance. Oh, wow. (laughs) So. So there I am. I'm halfway around the world. I'm so homesick. 
God for America. And then this movie starts. And I hear all these Australian people around me. They, the, you know, this movie, it's, it's the North Georgia and the, and yeah. the old rednecks and hillbillies. I, I'm looking at it with tears in my eyes, man. Like, right home, oh, didn't it? <laughs> God, man. I, oh, oh, I miss this so bad. And they're all going, oh, my God, do you believe there's people like that in the world? Well, of course <laughs> they are. Yeah. They're right there at home. I'm like, that's right yeah. there where I live almost. I can't wait to get on. I mean, it was a hard movie for me to watch. I mean, I just, it, I broke up many times, not for the quality and the content of the movie, because I was just so damn homesick. And I couldn't believe that out of all the movies, man, I go into one like this. I never read the book. I really, really enjoyed Deliverance much more than I should have probably. <laughs> because I was really homesick so far away. So next morning, I get a telephone call. It's from uh, Jim Barnett. It says, Ronald, uh, can you come down to my office? I need to speak. <laughs> okay, Jim, yeah, yeah, I'll be down. So, you know, and it's a pretty good distance from Cronulla, where I lived, uh, to hey. downtown, into, into the King's Cross part of Sydney, which is right downtown area. And I drive down there, and, and my, my dad's with him. They're sitting in Barnett's office upstairs, penthouse, Hilton Hotel. So I say, yeah, okay, guys, what, what's going on? And they go, uh, Jim says, uh, Ronald, you're going home tomorrow. Jeez. <laughs> whoa, Jim, uh, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, you know, I mean, uh, I'm supposed to be here another month. He goes, uh, something's happened. And I say, what's that? And he goes, uh, well, Ronald, I, you know, you're just one of the boys. But in America, uh, last night, uh, three nights ago, whatever it was, two, three nights ago, there was supposed to have been a world title change. Joey Funk Jr. was going to lose his title to Jack Briscoe. And he didn't do it. And the whole tour that, that I'd been there now, two months, the entire tour was based upon the world champion coming to defend in Australia uh, at the end of the tour in the, in the coming month. And what was going to happen, that world champion was going to be Jack Briscoe. But because Junior uh, supposedly had an accident on his father's ranch and couldn't defend the title and couldn't give it up to Briscoe, uh, Briscoe wasn't the champion. So I says, uh, What's the deal, guys? Uh, you know, why am I going home? And they go, uh, uh, you know, Dad picks it up from there, and he goes, well, you know, uh, Jack's really over in, in Florida, and, and this was supposed to be Jack, and now Jack's basically not going to be booked in any of the Florida towns, and, and you're a pretty big star in Florida, and, and you're the guy, Ron. you got to go home. You're going to go home, take Jack's place, yeah. you know? So I'm like, gosh, one day, no, this guy's go. Well, you know, we got your buck, Jim says. You're bucked, Ronald. You know, no problem, you're bucked. So, uh, <laughs> so we fly out the next day, my wife, my two little boys. Real quick, we get on the plane. And, and Sydney Airport has an extended runway for 747s. This is when 747s were big. And 747s were such monsters that you had to have an extended runway for them to be able to land on and take off on. Uh, Sydney had an extended runway that went out into Sydney Bay, and I knew it. 
I'd flown out of Sydney every time we flew somewhere, and you saw this big runway, but I hadn't been on it. Well, we're on a 747 going back uh, when you're going into Honolulu. We can't go all the way to America. It's too far. I think nowadays they can almost do that all the way from America to Australia. But you had to go to Hawaii and change planes and then go go from there. So anyway, we're on this big plane, and uh, and it's loaded. I mean, that uh, the plane is packed. And then we sit on the end of the runway. We're about to leave Australia. And, and the pilot comes on like they normally do sometimes. And he goes, we got a little weight here. You know, he goes, uh, I just want to tell you a few facts about the plane. We've got uh, 312 passengers on board. Uh, we're fully loaded. We've got 35,000 pounds in luggage on board. Uh, we've got, <laughs> we've got. 5,085 gallons of uh, petrol on board. Uh, sitting right here where we are on the runway, this plane weighs. Oh, it was like an it was like an absolutely ridiculous amount of weight. It was like a three hundred and twelve thousand pounds, right. whatever it was, yeah. right? You know, and I'm I'm thinking, wait a minute, man. I know we're got to got to go on this long runway. How are you going to get this thing off the ground? And after when about the time I'm thinking that thought, he goes, okay, we're going to see if we can get her off the ground. (laughs) 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 And he starts seeing, he gives it full throttle. And that big old plane, I'd never been on one like that. And it started slowly. It had those concrete slabs and the little rubber between them so that when the temperature was really hot, didn't he? They would press together, you know, and it, it wouldn't crack the concrete runway prep. And every time you went over one of those little little dividers there, the plane would kind of bounce a little bit. So gives it all this throttle, and then the plane starts going so slow, it's like three miles an hour. I could walk faster <laughs> than it's going, right? I'm like, oh, jeez, man, we're going to get off the ground like this, you know? And then it was bloom, bloom. Finally, it was like bloom. Ba-boom. And when we got out off of the land and onto the extension, I knew the extension was only about, looked like a half a mile long. Yeah. We still weren't up to 100. It didn't seem like we were up to 100 miles an hour yet. Right. I'm looking over. I'm thinking, this is it, man. We're not going home. We're going to die right here, Sydney Bay. <laughs> and then when we took off, we climbed out of there like a helicopter that just wanted to rise a foot at a time. I mean, we were like three feet off the water, five feet off the water, eight feet off the water. It was wow. like no no straight up like jets do today. I was like, oh, my goodness, man. It was a nasty way to leave the country. I was so worried on that flight because of the way he set that up. So I get home real quick, about to end this. I get home. I go to the first first shot. Tampa. I take my new wrestling bag in there. I got my boots inside them. And I sit down. Guys hadn't seen me in a long time. Everybody's like, hey, hey, no, hello. Hey, how you doing, Ron? God, man, good to see you. Back early, whatever. I set my bag down. And every guy in the dressing room went, wow. They all came. They all had the feel of it. Wow. They go, I've never seen a bag like that. Jeez, Ron. What is this? I said, it's kangaroo. What's this This skin here? That's crocodile. They were like, gosh, man. So 
<laughs> you know, they were, I was I was like the big hit, right? And then they kind of backed away. And uh, when they did, I unzipped it and I took out my new boots and I set them down on the floor. And every one of them, uh, same thing. Wow. What in the hell, Ron? Where'd you get those? I go, I had a maid. You know, they're kangaroo. Oh, here they come again. They all got to pick them up. And they all got to pick them up. And I was like, oh, good gracious. Uh, and it kind of, a, you know, this is a funny little deal at the very end. I had been for three years wrestling, and I had never won a championship. I had never been a star, a big star. And when I put those boots on and I went out there that night, two months later, I won the Southern Heavyweight Championship. Uh, six months later, I won the Florida Heavyweight Championship. My career took off right there that night in Tampa, Florida. It just changed my life. That trip to Australia basically changed my life. That is awesome. So you leave Sydney. You're headed home for stardom. You break out the new duds and everybody's gathered around. That's pretty awesome. So in the meantime, Ron, this is a great time to segue as we get under the learning tree. What's up for today? Well, like I said, uh, last week's show was really good. People had sent me tremendous comments. I want to thank everybody that sent comments about it. And thank you very much uh, those that enjoyed it. And everybody seemed to enjoy it. And I had all kinds of questions. Uh, and so I picked one. And I'm going to do next week a question about my family, but uh, I'd pick one this week uh, to use in place of that one today. And it's from a gentleman named Fred Edelman. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued with the Don Carson turn to baby face back to heel. Uh, was it your plan all along for it to be that quick? Because basically it was very quick. And uh, what would have happened if he hadn't have got hurt that night? Mm. Great question. You know, uh, as a booker, uh, you know, you you don't know what to expect. Uh, so, you know, first of all, I want to thank him for the compliment. But as a booker, you know, you got to be ready for anything to happen on any given night. I mean, something unexpected or not planned is going to happen. And you just don't know when. And then that's going to force you to change your direction and uh, and especially injuries. There's no telling somebody's going to get hurt. I want to explain to the gentleman what my thoughts were this angle, because it's odd to change a guy from heel to babyface and then change him right back so quickly. Coming up to the summer of 76, I was ready for a big change in talent. I had started setting guys up six months ahead of time to come in. And that process began on this stud cast right here. We had two new guys in this stud cast. We had uh, Louis Tillette, Carl Von Steiger, uh, two new heels that came in on the 11th of June. In the coming two months, I was going to lose Robert Fuller. My brother was going to be leaving, and so was Butch Malone. Uh, and they were going to be replaced by Bob Armstrong and Dick Steinborn in August as a masked man called the Gladiator. I was going to be losing my two superstars, uh, or the Super Avengers. <laughs> you know, whatever. They'd had three names. But I was loading up my heel crew to ignite the summer. So Louis Tillet I had coming. Uh, I had the great Mephisto, a guy named Frankie Kane, who's not just a tremendous worker, but a tremendous mind in the business. I had not just Carl Von Steiger, we'd just seen, but I had his brother coming about three weeks later. 
And uh, they're going to end up being Southeastern tag champions, take the place of the superstars, and take the place very well, To be as a matter of fact. And by the end of the summer, I'm going to add another great heel, Ronnie Garvin. So I'd gotten this idea in my head as a young booker and, you know, thinking and thinking, maybe thinking too much about a heel-to-heel confrontation. You know, and I wanted to see for myself just what it would be like if I did an angle where I had two heels going at each other and if that would draw money. So I basically kind of did that. I did it with Don Carson and Homer O'Dell and his men. And uh, I was going to lose my very good heel team of the superstars at the beginning of the summer. I knew that. And I was going to need stronger single heels to carry the heat until my new tag team, which I just mentioned, the Von Steigers, could establish themselves. So turning Carson babyface May made sense uh, because my babyfaces were weaker. My babyfaces on the bottom of my cards was Butch Malone. He's going to be leaving. Mike Stallings, who wasn't quite ready yet to draw big money. I needed a couple of babyfaces there. And turning Don Carson babyface, it moved the top heel into a babyface slot, which was where I needed help at that point. And I also put heat on Homer and Tanaka and Austin by doing so. So I thought it was a pretty sweet little angle. And my plan was to get Ron Wright involved, fire him up again as a baby face, and that would enable him to carry a larger load for me uh, until some of the new baby faces, like Bob Armstrong, uh, got over. And what better way to get uh, Ron Wright back charged up again than the partnering? with his old nemesis, Don Carson, who had just turned baby. And then I figured as we get into June, my plan was to turn Carson back heel, make him hotter than ever, because I felt like if he turned baby face, and then he suckered Ron Wright, this old guy that he had already had his eyes busted, everything else had done horrible things to Ron Wright, he suckered him in to believing that he'd had a change of heart, and Ron Wright went for it, and then he had a chance to turn on him again well, that's basically going to make Don Carson hotter than ever. And it would have because of the quick turn and because of him betraying Ron Wright. So my plan was to program Ron Wright against Don Carson everywhere in the early mid-June all the way into July. And that would allow these new heels that I had coming to get over because I thought that those two guys could carry the load. So... Um, Mr. Edelman, to kind of answer your question, my plan was for Carson, switch babyface and have a real quick turn right back to heel again. Now, the unexpected injury to Carson, well, that just destroyed everything. It destroyed all my plans. I never got the benefit of Carson switching back to heel because he got hurt the night he switched back to heel. So the result for my June cards was that they were much weaker after Carson got hurt. So the answer to his second question, Mr. Edelman's second question was, if he hadn't gotten hurt, what would have happened? Well, here's what I think. I think we would have had an even better early part of the summer. Our towns are going to fall off a little bit in early June here because of not having Carson, Ron Wright, Angle to carry us on and not having me being able to work with Tanaka to carry us on too. So, you know, the answer is, uh, what would have happened, uh, you know, if, uh, if he hadn't got hurt, then I would have had these guys to go with, and I would have had a better June, and I could have introduced my new guys 
to big crowds that would have gotten them over even faster because the more people that saw them, the better they were going to get over. And they would have built momentum back all summer long. So I'm going to read a newspaper clip from the Knoxville paper, which was eight days after Don Carson's injury. On Saturday, this this article appeared in the Knoxville paper on Saturday, June 12th, 1976. This write-up really hurt me. Uh, Don Carson, the former Southeastern heavyweight champion, has undergone knee surgery at Cleveland, Tennessee, to correct a cartilage injury. He will be out three to six months. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how I felt when I read that. You know, yeah. I was like, three to six months. I mean, uh, I knew wrestlers were tough, you know, and uh, why? Why were wrestlers tough? Well, the main reason was because they had to be. Uh, they didn't have insurance to pay doctors or hospital. So Don had to pay for his own surgery. Uh, he didn't have any insurance because you couldn't get insurance. As soon as they found out you were a wrestler, they wouldn't cover you. So he didn't have any insurance. They also didn't get paid when they were hurt, couldn't work. So he's not going to make any money. So guys had to go back to work long before they should have or end up bankrupt. You know, it was a bad situation for wrestlers. I helped Don some with his surgery. And, uh, you know, I helped him uh, with some money in the short range. I did that for a lot of my wrestlers that got hurt. But not every promoter did that. I knew Carson was going to come back much sooner than anybody expected he would. Uh, it was just I was going to have to do the same thing with, with my own injury. I'm going to have to come back before I want to, too, because it was necessary. I needed it, too. And I needed my territory needed it. So I brought Don Carson back as a manager on crutches after just four weeks after this injury that just took place. And I had him manage the heel, Louis Tillet, that was just started on this card. And who did I have him manage Tillet against? Ron Wright. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right? So in a way, I still got something out of that injury. You know, and Carson still got some extra paydays. He right. couldn't wrestle, but he was getting paid for at least managing. Carson was tough. Uh, he was back in the ring after only seven weeks, cartilage surgery and everything. He was back in the ring. Ten weeks after his injury, on Friday, August 13, 1976, he and I would set the all-time wrestling record in Chihuahua Park. So talk about coming back from an injury and me coming off of an injury. And Friday, on August the 13th, 76, we're going to draw the biggest crowd ever in Chihuahua Park. That is awesome. And another great story from the Tennessee Stud, another stud cast. Want to become friends with Ron? Simply like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and you are automatically a friend. On Twitter, find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Super stud cast number 29. All about Jim Barnett is a new record setter, four hours in length. Want to say a few words about that one, Ron? I know you had a lot of great guests on that show. Yes. Yes, I did. And I would like to thank them, too. Uh, and what a tremendous show that is. Gee, said Barnett's history is just unbelievable. Uh, it, it's a remarkable story. And uh, I had Jim Cornette. I had David Schultz. I had Kevin Sullivan. I had uh, Brother Robert. Uh, I had Jimmy Golden. I had Les Thatcher. I had Charlie Platt, the commentator from Southeastern in Pensacola. 
uh, just a tremendous group of wrestlers. All of them had great stories. It's really a phenomenal Super Studcast. And as you said, it's four hours long. Uh, it's actually a little over four hours. So, uh, you know, if fans get a chance to listen to it, I think they'll be uh, really, really amazed at, uh, at the Jim Barnett story. It is a truly remarkable piece of history. I talked to you on the phone around a, a, another friend of yours, Charlie Platt. It seems like everybody does an impression of Jim Barnett in one form or another. Yes. You know, and I think every one of these guys does it too. Right. They're going to hear a lot of different impressions of Jim Barnett. That's for sure. That's awesome. That's fun stuff. All right. So where are we headed to next week, Ron? Well, we have a new star saddling up, man. Uh, One that's going to become a part of Southeastern. He's going to become a part of Continental. He's going to follow me and become a part of USA Wrestling in 1988. At his time during all these years, he was known under the hood as the Georgia Jawjacker. Uh-huh. He was known as the Bullet. Yeah. And he's a Hall of Famer. Bob Armstrong is going to make his appearance at Southeastern Wrestling. Wow. And we're going to be riding uh, riding further into June of 1976. Next week, uh, we're going to be uh, moving up an, an annual summer battle royal to help uh, boost these cards because of these injuries and, and uh, getting kicked back a little bit. We're going to get that momentum back. Uh, so we're going to move up the battle royal into next week. Uh, we're going to head uh, into new records for the summer of 1976. We're going to break all kinds of records in the summer of 76. Uh, we're going to discuss more booking moves, and we're going to finish with a deep dive. Another one of those uh, uh, learning tree questions about my family, my Welch family wrestling history, the Hatfields, the Goldens the different parts of my uh, wrestling family and some of those people that I've never really talked about and what kind of stars they were and what kind of athletes they were uh, should be very interesting for fans because uh, I come from the oldest, uh, oldest family in the sport in the history of the sport. So uh, that should be really good. Okay. And, uh, and I'd like to thank obviously Dave, everybody that joins us today here and, uh, and I, everybody take care of yourself out there and, uh, and take care of others, too, if you can. And may God bless us all. Awesome job, Rod. This is David Summers thanking you for listening today and reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Ride with us again next week right here. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.